This is one of the few instances where such great innovation has occurred technologically outside of the public sector, that the government has generally had limited role in the innovation per se. That creates a whole host of new challenges because we are left to some degree to private corporations and entities to guide this technology and its development and deployment more so than in the past. You're listening to This Much I Know, the SeedCamp Podcast. Welcome, everyone. Today, I have two great friends on the podcast. Sir Tom Wilson, my colleague and one of the best people I know. I really enjoy having my chats with him about every subject. Today's subject is the utopian distinction subject of artificial intelligence. And for that subject, we brought in a good friend who also knows this subject extremely well. Aaron Rosenberg from Radical VC. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be fun. Exactly. Well, we need to know who you are. Uh, We'd love to start with what you studied in college and what you did right afterwards. Okay. Starting in college. So I, uh, as, as folks will possibly pick up already, um, though I live in London, I'm originally from the United States, from New York, and I... Went to university there. I studied, uh, or in the United States, I should say, I studied economics and public policy, or what was called government. Thought there was any number of paths that I could have pursued. I thought public service might have been one. I was a big fan of the West Wing. And so I went and spent a summer in the New York City mayor's office when it was Mayor Bloomberg. That was a sort of fun and wild experience. Thought then that finance might have been the right path for me. And explored, uh, took sort of tiptoed into that and decided not so much then. Uh, and then consulting ultimately was the professional uh, path that I pursued initially out of university at McKinsey and Company for several years. Um, and that was that was fun. I've already forgotten the second half of your question. It was, what did I study in college? And yeah, what was the second well, you half? Did, so you did, you did consulting. So you- I you did know. consulting. I followed the very well-trodden path. And- um, and then I had a great experience there. I, I did a, a wide array of, of projects. And after uh, a few years of doing the typical sort of analyst journey, I had this really extraordinary opportunity to work with the head of the firm, a fellow named Dominic Barton, as his uh, deputy, and travel the world and be in the room for all sorts of meetings where I had no place to be, except for the fact that this wonderful man was inviting me in. and. It was a, a phenomenal chance to accelerate my development in any number of ways, just gain so much exposure and learn so much by osmosis. I still to this day realize that I, I learned lessons then that are only coming to fruition now in terms of having an impact and how I you know, view the world. It was also a thoroughly grueling experience. He was someone who led by a sense of presence. He thought it was important to be in person with people, a different world, obviously, in those days. And... So on average, the fun fact was that we are in a new country every third day, which is just grueling. And uh, in retrospect, I have no idea how I survived. So I did a year of that. What was the most random as much as I could tolerate? What was was the most random country? Well, like what was the most distant, if you will? Uh, Distant from any experience I'd had previously was probably Saudi Arabia. That was one that I had very little. I I had limited exposure to the Middle East in general prior to the year. And I just had had even less exposure to that culture. Uh, and so I think that was probably the most 
what's the novel maybe is the right word and therefore educational in a sense and it was also just a, a wildly hot uh few days that I was there so much so that I remember I was in this SUV on with a full blast of, of air conditioning going and still sweating just inside a car at one point and that was stuck in my memory you decided consulting in hot places was probably not for you and then what did you do yeah, exactly. So I, I had now seen the analyst point of view of consulting and maybe the view from the top, neither of which I found compelling enough for a career. And so I followed or I continued, I guess, along the, the well-trodden path as I had started uh, to, to business school. And it was there that I found my fascination with the field of machine learning. I I just had been sort of loosely involved in the McKinsey acquisition of Quantum Black, a data science company, and uh, sort of a rival to Palantir. That had, I think, given me an initial glimpse of what was possible with these increasingly sophisticated data science techniques. And when I was at, at business school, I had this space to read extensively. And I would find that I just was endlessly fascinated with machine learning and could read an article after an article, after a book, after a conversation, after, and would just never cease to have interest. And that for me said something was there for me to continue to investigate. And so I put out to the world that I wanted to be anyone who was doing, you know, cool stuff in machine learning. And this was in 2015. So still kind of early for most business minded individuals to be focused so acutely on this domain. And I just so happened to have a friend of a friend at DeepMind who was also from a non-technical background because at the time I had really very little technical underpinning. I had taken one computer science class that I thoroughly loved. Uh, unfortunately, it was the last semester of my uh, university degree. So I, I did not get to pursue it more. And since then, I've now had uh, so much learning thanks to DeepMind. And then I've also uh, started a, a part-time uh, master's in computer science. There's, I wish I had taken more time before going to business school to really consider what would have been the best uh, sort of edification that I could have undertaken, which probably would have instead been in computer science or maybe a joint degree of some kind. Nevertheless, I met this fellow who put me in touch with other people and other people and meandering, you know, conversations ensued for many months until incredibly fortuitously, I got to meet Demis Asabas, the founder and CEO, who just so happened to be thinking about adding someone to his team with something like my background at that time. And so after speaking with him a few times, I, he, he being just such a unbelievably, truly, truly phenomenally inspiring individual, phenomenal in the sense of like end of one uh, kind of individual. He took a giant leap of faith, uh, hired me uh, because I had done something like what he needed with the head of McKinsey. And I joined at, I guess it was now 2017, the summer of 2017, the role? Uh, six years you? ago, into the office of the CEO as a quote unquote principal. There was a sort of nebulous title 
Uh, I think initially I was actually called a program manager because anyone who is not a research scientist or research engineer or software engineer was a program manager, basically. That's like they had one title for all else. Um, and that was because it was basically at that time an overgrown academic lab. D-Mind was about 500 you know, PhDs, basically. <laughs> so I, I, I joined to help Demis. Um, I, I had the great the, privilege of... What was the first job? Like you, you joined, right? You hit, here's the... Here's the... DeepMind laptop with the, you know, the keys and everything. What was the first project you had to do? Boy, there were, there were so many fun ones. The first was just really shadowing for a while. I, you know, a lot of what I was trying to do was pick up whatever I could from Demis and, and try to, sometimes the way I describe a chief of staff kind of role is one in which you are trying to identify how you can complement the principle and supplement the principle what in what ways would the individual like for you to take things off of their plate entirely that being more of the complementary uh, variety and in what ways do they just need more horsepower to do what they are doing uh, and that being the more supplemental uh, variety um, and so that was a lot of like the first few months was just trying to assess what could I do that would be useful and what was kind of amazing was because I came from a different background than almost anyone else in the company. There were ways that I could contribute that felt natural that were actually distinctive just because there was no one else there who, you know, or very few people, I should say, who had that mindset, had that perspective. Um, so some of the, the early projects were simply in helping to run meetings effectively as, as banal as that may sound. Uh, and, you know, I, I helped uh, in an early instance uh, think about how we could open a new office. We investigated uh, establishing a presence in Paris and then ultimately decided to go and then do so, uh, which was a really a, a fun experience. And we ended up having an announcement alongside President Macron and all this, and that was pretty cool. Um, another really great and relevant to this day uh, effort was in the vein of responsibility. So DeepMind took really seriously from the get-go the notion that this technology would have such incredible power and have such generality in its purpose that ensuring the benefits and mitigating the risks would be critical. All right. Well, that, so years, that one, years. don't go any deeper on that one because we're going to come back to that one in a second. So don't go any deeper on that one. But before... Before we go more into some of those areas, I wanted to ask you two, two separate questions regarding yeah. the deep mind. First of all, I'd love for you, you're so complimentary of Demis um, that I'm intrigued now. If you could summarize how he thinks, like how he thinks as somebody who witnessed how he thinks, how does somebody like him think differently than the rest of us? So that's the first question. Yeah. Happy to repeat it if you forget. But the second one is looking back when you were done with deep mind. What were the three things that you most learned from that time? So, yeah. So we'd love to hear how Demis thinks. Okay. So starting with Demis thinking, he, you'll hear him describe his life on podcasts, as he's now done many times or in, in lectures and videos. One quality or one experience that was instrumental was that of being a child prodigy in chess. He is an extremely gifted chess player. And he carries with him that approach to life, which is to say that he often will simulate how 
a number of trajectories could transpire. And then based upon that rollout of some scenario, decide his best approach in the current state. This is actually not unlike how reinforcement learning agents operate in virtual environments. So he takes that to everything that he does. So whether it's in considering what research direction to take or how to form some team, how to engage with some partner, how to uh, influence policy. In every context, he will think about what are the 15 ways this could go? And if I do this, then what will they likely do? And he tries to map it out like a chess game in some sense. And obviously life is much higher dimensional than chess and has greater complexity in some regard. Yet there's a lot that you can learn from that notion of thinking many steps ahead and then updating your current perspective based on you know the likely distribution of outcomes in that rollout. So uh, I, I think that's something that he did incredibly well and dedicated a lot of time. And, and he really did that. It's not so much, you know, a lot of people talk about, oh yeah, I try to like predict how this is going to go. And then I sort of, he would do so in a very structured and deliberate fashion, perhaps unlike anyone I had seen. And he would really, yeah, sort of war game it in a sense. So that, that was one of so many impressive qualities and in terms of how he thought about the future. If I then go to your second question on what were some of the major learnings, so I had the pleasure of being there for, for six years. I thought I would never leave. Honestly, I was so uh, excited. I, I, lo I love DeepMind and have, have largely only uh, positive uh, things to say about the place. I mean, you get to be there for so long and you love it so much that you can see the imperfections and still love it, that kind of thing. That's how I was with the organization by the end. And it's just a, a set of amazing people from whom I learned so much. If I had to come up with three. One, absolutely, is that there is, I, I guess, a, a greater appreciation for the nature of this technology in its exponential uh, development. By that, I mean, we would consistently, so every about six months, we would set these research goals. And what we would find every six months, basically, is that particularly in certain efforts, there would be very limited traction, technically, for a very long time. And then when we were like a month from the deadline of trying to achieve some target of state of the art in how some reinforcement learning agent would operate in some environment or AlphaFold or, you know, any other type of advance, there would be just a takeoff that was crazy this, and mind-boggling law are we is, is there a name for this or should we call it rosenberg's law what, what is there <laughs> oh my gosh is this I, I i you know it's so funny that you say that because actually going back to college one of the great aspirations that i had back 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 in the day would that one day there would be something called you know the rosenberg law or the rosenberg it's, rule it's and so on so done. oh my gosh would that done. be amazing to come full circle yeah All i right. love that thank you carlos no I, I think so next so I lesson think, anyway Okay, next lesson learned. Um, just, to, just to put a finer point on the first one, I think we as humans are terrible at forecasting exponential growth. We're just horrible. We do it. And, and so I, I'm not that much better. I just try to almost 
overweight the rate, the pace of change in a sense. I estimate myself and, th and then I bias even yeah, to I an accelerated version. Who, I forget who had this quote, but it was something like, we overestimate what we can achieve in a year and we underestimate what we can achieve in 10. I can't remember who said that. Yeah, it's that very note that applies exactly readily to exponential technologies. And yeah, I'm trying to remember who that quote was as well. It's a good one. Okay. Second, I guess maybe relates to the the fact that as amazing as DeepMind is as an organization and as Alphabet more broadly is, there is only so much that a single organization can do. And that for me yielded this insight that there is so much potential for artificial intelligence. And there is there there are going to be countless ways in which a broader community can realize that potential or help to realize that potential in ways that are adjacent to or independent of these behemoths like the alphabets and the Microsoft and the open AIs and the deep minds of the world. That there's just there's more that is possible then will make sense for any one of these organizations to do alone, as large, as great as they are, either because they have a business model that is incompatible with some potential way in which this can benefit humanity, or just from a attention and focus and capacity perspective. You know, Demis himself is he's a one person, right? And he he does a he's an he's an incredibly productive person and efficient person. And still, he can only spread his attention so thinly and, and have the sort of influence uh, that he can have in so many individual initiatives. Uh, and so it, I think that that for me is is a big piece of this, that the pie broadly is growing and that there's just such a big pie that, that so many people can have an impact in the world using machine learning that extends beyond the major incumbents as large as they are. That might be a second one. Um, that and that actually relates to that. uplifting one because when we get to investments, it, it gives me a little bit more hope. Um, yeah, right. yeah. So what's the third one? What's the third one? Uh, so the first one was Rosenberg's Law. The second yes. one is funds aren't screwed. Uh, what's the third one? Yeah, <laughs> I love this. The third one, I guess, I, I okay, maybe the third one is that ultimately organizations are just a group of people. Uh, I think that. I came in maybe with a background in consulting and in business school, thinking that, you know, companies are these entities unto themselves that have a degree of autonomy and uh, desires and purposes. And yet then when I was at Demon, I realized just, you know, everyone is doing the best that they can with the information that they have at hand. And, to build an, a successful enterprise, you work with the team that you have to achieve the goal that you have. I, I guess what I mean is there is no organization without its people. And it's just, what, I guess this came through in the, in, in, to the greatest effect when we were building this company called Isomorphic Labs, which we incubated within DeepMind and then spun out that was applying computational methods to drug discovery, uh, building atop the innovation in AlphaFold and various other advances that the science team were, were making. It was an extraordinary chance to, to, to contribute in a small way to that effort alongside so many other brilliant people. And what I saw as we were forming the initial team, because we built this basically from scratch as we were standing it up separately as its own entity, was how interrelated the 
process was for one role versus another. As you were trying to assemble this set of capabilities within the, a team, if you made, you could have on a blank sheet, of paper, blank sheet of paper, here are all the roles that we think we need. And then you go out and you find someone and that person possesses a little bit of X and a little bit of Y, a lot of Z. And so what you realize is actually, that's a great person. We should definitely take that person. And we now need to work out how we fill the gaps around that person and you know what else. And so whatever you had on the piece of paper to start with is really just a loose sort of loose target, loose diagram that then you know hits the real world and you start assembling the people and the people are ultimately what brings this thing to life. So there are many ways in which that, you know, and it's not even that much of an insight. I think it's actually a, a fairly sort of, it's a dispelling of the naivete that I had. I, th I think it's a utopian one to transition to investments because it, it showcases that it ultimately it's a people problem and that no matter how much we fear the big AI taking over things, at the end of the day, it's still a people problem. So I wanted to jump uh, to my colleague, Tom, to talk a little bit about investments and then I'd love to hear your thoughts as well, Aaron. Before we do that, of course, everyone who's listening to this knows that you know, you're now Radical VC and that's an amazing fund focusing a lot on AI. So this is where the rubber hits the road. So, Tom, are we in a bubble? I mean, we're looking at this podcast 2023, <laughs> you know, early beginning of the year, everyone was investing it like mad. And then all of a sudden, I think everyone's a bit sort of glutted out on every single kind of investment. Open AI as a backdrop has just launched pretty much everything that we and everybody else invested in over the last five months. It's spreading fear that every single startup that was invested in the last five months is no longer. So is it as bad as I just painted it or is it better? Tom. Wow. What a question to kick things off. Um, yeah, look, I think, I think, I think it is, there's many signs to say that the market is pretty, pretty hot and I'm kind of excited to, to dive into that a lot more with Aaron, um, particularly like taking on the kind of history of what, you've been so deep in the space for so long, but we've also, you know, Seacamp, we've been investing in, in AI for a while. Like we had our annual investor event last week on, on Wednesday, where we, we presented some slides to the investors across our funds. And we had this fantastic slide showing the exposure of our 70 AI investments that we've made over the years. The title of which was, we've been investing in AI before Rishi enjoyed it, um, which I think we liked putting that, that out there a little bit. But yeah, I mean, I think when we were looking at that data, we first invested in, in AI back in 2012. Um, and as I said, we invested in 70 companies, you know, some of them, the likes of UiPath, which have gone public, Synthesia, which raised, um, you know, around a billion dollar valuation this year in this market, which is a massive achievement and is, is doing some incredible things. Visit AI over in the US, you know, um, focus on healthcare space that Aaron, you mentioned before. So there's a lot of experience there and there's a lot of kind of investing, which has been going on for a while. But to come back to your question, Carlos, I think the last couple of years, it's exploded, right? You know, I mean, it has taken off. Um, you know, I look at our recent deal flow, the, I think we've made kind of 13 commitments from a, a new fund, which we closed in March and nine pretty much have a connection to AI. Whether that's a bubble or whether we're looking at some kind of an enabling technology rather than a sector which is um, investing in, I think that's a really interesting kind of like topic to discuss more. Um, but for us, we're seeing actually some huge potential for value creation with this technology. So I think... From that side, I'm of the view, not bubble, but because the the actual kind of like value creation possibilities are so great, 
And we're seeing that actually not just across new companies, but also across some of our existing companies. So I could take one example on why that, like how that's potentially playing out. And that's a business actually that, again, we had an interview just last week, um, not on the podcast, but in this live event in the legal space. So as I think um, prior to, well, I didn't have quite as illustrious a, a background connected to AI as, as Aaron. Um, before joining Seacamp almost 10 years ago, I actually worked in the legal space as, as a lawyer and I've always had a kind of keen interest in how AI can be applied to that vertical, which I think is a, a one which is almost the most ripe for, for automation and particularly exciting with where we are with generative. That being said, we've invested in companies over a period of time in that space. One of them was a business called Juro. And I think that's a really interesting example of something that always had AI on its roadmap you know, founded back in 2015, 2016, you know, raised from fantastic investors, you know, the likes of Point Nine, New Square Ventures, most recently Eight Roads with the Series B um, about 18 months ago, but hasn't been able to necessarily unlock the value of it because the technology wasn't there in terms of where we are with large language models, which I'm sure we'll come to soon. Now they're able to take advantage of the amazing distribution they've got across the, you know, hundreds, if not more customers and add this as a kind of feature set to be able to serve and deliver even more value to, to the customers that they have and really accelerate their kind of product roadmap and, and what they can offer. So I think that that's a really interesting theme as well. So I think we're seeing maybe some bubble in terms of new companies, new company formation. I think what you talked about there, Carlos, about how this fits in with OpenAI and you know the bigger companies in the space and how they can be competitive. But I think that where it's really, really interesting also and less bubble-like is this ability for companies to incorporate some of this technology when they're a little bit further along. So there's pros and, and cons to where we are in the market at the moment, but really excited to kind of dive into to more of the discussion because it's, nice. it's definitely a very timely one. Yeah, well, I, I agree with everything you said, Don, everything. Um, <laughs> I'm wondering if you agree or disagree. First of all, I'd love to hear um, what areas of AI, you would not even bother touching with a 10 foot pole at the moment. You would just be like, no way, I'm steering clear of that. And then what areas you're like, okay, this is this still has runway. And uh, and which ones you think OpenAI will kill uh, from just sure. six months? Sure, well, there's so, there's so much there that Tom shared to which I want to respond. I, I, I guess, um, you know, you, you mentioned Carlos originally the 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 idea. Are we in a bubble? I, I think this, in some respect, my my perspective on this it re relates to the comment that you made earlier. Still about overestimating short term, underestimating long term. And for me, I think in the short term, for a variety of reasons, including the fact that a lot of big firms that have raised a lot of capital are now flooding into this area where other investment opportunities are less attractive, perhaps cryptocurrencies or blockchain-based technologies and so on, which were, you know, major. There's a lot of capital rushing to machine learning. And I think what we are generally seeing is a relatively limited, I mean, a very rapidly growing supply, but still limited relative to that demand. And there being, therefore, uh, perhaps a, a slight surge in prices that we, that makes us uncomfortable in many contexts. And we often will bow out of investments for pricing reasons. Uh, and yet over the long term, I think this is not even, you know, I, I don't know what the opposite of a bubble is, but <laughs> there, there's, a, there's a vast underappreciation for, for the value that will be created in that and that some businesses will be able to capture. So that's my holistic view. I also, I will say, am the son of two 
litigators and the the applications of machine learning to the law is always had a, a soft spot in my heart. And I know the folks like Gabe and Winston at, at Harvey, and I talked to them from like their earliest of days before I was in this world when I was still a deep mind. Uh, and because and Gabe, Gabe was a deep minder back before uh, he started this latest journey. Um, and I've looked at a number of sort of legal applications, which I think are fascinating. I guess at this stage, I'm still new to the investing world at, at roughly six months in. And I therefore bias towards yes, in the sense of taking phone calls, taking meetings, because I just love to learn. And I find- Aaron, you're cheating. Really... That's a cheating answer. Come on. I know it's a cheating I know answer. Stuff well, you're I guess... no to. Well, what I, is it? I, okay, okay, okay. Well, I, I think, um, I get, okay. So what I will say, I, I, I say, I, I, I go, I run towards uh, really difficult areas. I guess maybe I say no to, it's hard to say like, this specific domain or this specific, yet the more, uh, I mean, it sounds obvious and it is, it's like the more obvious applications of language models in particular do not excite me uh, because I I think that's, you know, it's a classic adage of where the puck is going versus where it is now. And there's just so much uh, to come technologically that you often hear this conversation occur in podcasts and others about you know, how do we know that OpenAI is not just going to render this company or that company redundant with their next release? To the extent that what you are doing is reformulating language, that for me, without any restrictions or regulatory context or, you know, risks of, of a one kind or another, that is simple enough to be uh, uninteresting. Um, and that could apply to the, you know, copywriting companies or, um, even some some simpler uh, text-to-image creators. Not to say that those aren't impressive in their own right. They just, they don't fascinate me personally. I, I because I think from my days of DeepMind, have a predilection for, for the application of machine learning to the sciences, for instance, and the discovery of new knowledge. So actually my first investment, um, which I cannot quite say everything about yet, but will soon, uh, was in the, the application of computational methods to uh, material design and, and chemicals, um, with one of the first applications being in the development of a material that is in a broader category of sorbents that can be used in carbon capture contexts. So for me, that was super motivating because first, the founder is an amazing, amazing person, and 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 the team is awesome. Uh, I I love that. And then it has a very mission driven sort of uh, ethos, which beckons to me. And they're going after something really hard, really, yeah. really hard that would not be possible without this technology. That like what we as humans are basically inept at doing without this tool. And that that is where for me, there's so much possibility where this technology unlocks whole new possibilities, not just like makes humans a bit more capable in a sort of co-piloty fashion, uh, but is an entirely different mechanism of discovery. It's it's you know it's like it's we've invented the microscope or the telescope, and we've opened up a whole new field of discovery and of knowledge creation. That's where I find the the greatest excitement. Yeah, no, I I think that um, that that makes sense. You know, I I don't know, Tom, if you have any views on that, but it definitely something that resonates with us. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's the stuff which we kind of also run towards, you know, those kind of hard problems. And I think it's 
you know, having been in venture for almost 10 years now, I think what's incredible about this period of time is it's almost you can go back to some of the things that we maybe had even invested in or definitely wanted to see problems with soft, like software solved problems for. Um, and now they're possible or now they're potentially possible because of where we are with, with the technology. So it's almost like you have to kind of unlearn some of the things which you, you'd had kind of like in, in your mind around why some businesses might not work because what's possible now is, is so significant. So I think from that perspective, it is an incredibly exciting time to be an early stage investor, even if, as, as you alluded to, Aaron, some of the like pricing around some of these businesses is, is a little bit challenging as an early stage investor. Um, one of the things which I'm like, I think struggling with as an investor, I think we're struggling with as a, as a firm sometimes is those type of businesses and those type of founders where they're mission driven and they're just going to make it happen. It's going to run through walls and it's in a massive space. Exactly what you, you described there seem like, you know, no brainers, let's go do it. Um, where we're figuring out and are making some investments, but just trying to kind of like get ahead around a little bit going forward is kind of timing the market a little bit on some of the other stuff. Cause you talk there about, which I think is a really good way of thinking about, you know, are we kind of underestimating the potential for exponential growth, which I think is a really important thing as an early stage investor to have in the back of your mind. But equally, the the space is still quite nascent and we're seeing kind of an emergent class of companies which are serving just the space. So like MLOps, DevOps and deployment, kind of businesses around guardrails, which I think are going to have a massive part to play and they're going to be some huge winners. But where I'm having pause on that space is the kind of downstream capital risk. If there's, you know, 100 dev, um, ML ops companies which are funded right now, then for us as early stage investors, we've always got half an eye on what does the Series A look like? And when the market still isn't massive, you know, for where the, the, the companies are which are able to deploy this kind of technology, it's, you know, are we going to have a lot of those companies struggle basically to, to break out? Um, so that's kind of an insight, I suppose, into some of the conversations. I know, Carlos, that we have a lot about there's certain businesses which are just like hell yeah we're like banging the table and i think it sounds like material sciences is one of that and i personally also absolutely love that kind of space where you're thinking about what's possible and we're sci- like almost like science fiction which i know carlos does as a very keen science fiction writer and um, reader um but i and think writer, that this and writer i was gonna say <laughs> yeah um but i think that the, in, the one which we're we're Thompson. kind of getting we're getting comfortable with this kind of one removed space around this, this is a good, sector. This is a good hot potato that I, we want to hand to Aaron. Um, and so you know, you did you you bake the potato. I'm going to put the filling in there. Um, you bring up this issue of market timing of some of these investments. I want to bring up the issue of our customers buying, because I feel like part of the issue is not just timing the market from the point of view of like building something, being oversaturated and funding, but you know, I hear from some of my friends in, in the other side of the world, the corporate world, saying, you know, we're just kind of waiting for whatever Microsoft's going to release and going to just use that. And it just makes me fear that it's not just a timing from the point of view of is this too early for this stuff? Um, it's whether or not the customer even cares. So there you go. Hot potato. Take it whichever way you want, Aaron. Oh, my gosh. I don't know where to take that. I, I guess I, I, uh, Wait, well, okay. To cheat for one second, I think one one piece that you mentioned earlier, Tom, is is I think the 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 the, the challenges that you mentioned around ML ops companies, I similarly share. Not only because I think that many in many respects they're solving for today's problems in the stack and may not therefore be as relevant in you know five years, ten years. Of course, they could grow alongside 
you know, the industry and, and continue to serve customers, the other sort of businesses innovating. Yet I find that just really difficult because you're, you're having to predicate your product roadmap on another, on the whole sort of research fields roadmap, which inherently is stochastic and difficult to predict. So it's, it's, I think that's just a very difficult um, undertaking. And what's more, as much as I might try, I, I myself do not every day work with these tools. I'm not a full-time software engineer or machine learning engineer. And so it's hard for me to have the same appreciation and empathy for the problems that, that they do. And, and so that's so it's something I'm trying to learn how to do better because I, I don't want to forever say that I will not be able to make an investment in that sort of layer of the stack as we typically call it. But I, I do struggle, I will say. So maybe that goes back to your earlier question, Carlos, and that's a, a realer answer that I, I, I struggle with ML ops and infrastructure um, plays. Your, your, your latest question was more, you know, are customers uh, showing appetite and, and may they just wait until uh, the Microsofts of the world? I actually think this ties back to an earlier theme that you suggested we not dig into at the time around, around trust and responsibility and, and so much of the adoption being dependent upon a degree of credibility. Uh, and many of these customers already having such trust in the Microsofts of the world that if Microsoft offers the same or even slightly suboptimal uh, product, they will take it much more readily than an upstart where they cannot have that same level of assurance. Um, and that's not least why we care so much about the topic of responsibility as a firm at Radical. Uh, and because we, we view that as something that should be uh, a reinforcing factor uh, to an offering that one of our portfolio companies might be making, you know, Cohere, for instance, a large language model provider, one of the benefits that they offer is that they are agnostic as to cloud service provider, as to, you know, what database you're using and, and so on. And they are pushing themselves. Uh, they have a Cohere for AI group. They, they, they care uh, greatly about, about responsibility and safety. And, and so th that's one of the ways in which they end up succeeding where, you know, in, in this very uh, competitive environment where you have the open AIs of the world and others, um, because they can convince that their customers that they will take, you know, data privacy and, and, and various other elements of responsibility seriously and, and uphold uh, the standards that, that the, the customers ultimately need in order to, to proceed. Um, there was a piece there that I was going to circle back to, and now it's escaping me. So maybe oh, I'll, I'll hand the hot potato reading, back to you. I'm reading between the lines <laughs> your answer was there. And, and I'm seeing and I'm hearing like a much more thin razor margin for startups to crack open contracts. And, and maybe I misunderstood you, but to, to me, the, the fear, the anxiety here that, you know, we're not even we're not even on the subject of utopian versus dystopian impact on society. It just looks like a lot of value is going to accrue to big tech in a way where startups may not have as an opportunity to capture the way they have for the last decade. I don't know if you want to comment on that. I will downplay the confidence in my own perspective here because I do not have the decade of experience of working with startups to have seen the enterprise sales cycles that they have endured and the challenges they've faced and maybe overcome in some circumstances. I, I guess I'll, yeah, I, I will just say that there, it's a very real and, and reasonable fear to have or feeling maybe to have as a enterprise customer of some of these startups to think, 
yeah, I, I could just maybe wait to see what happens in OpenAI's next, uh, you know, press announcement and, and then see if they can serve my needs in the way that I want. I, I think that's a legitimate approach. I think the best startups will be those that offer something differentiated that is, this maybe goes back to an earlier statement I made about, you know, one of my learnings from DeepMind is that it will not always make sense for OpenAI to innovate in a way that will serve the customer in the way that they need. And there will be so many ways in which it will not. And so as a startup, if you can find those niches where maybe there is a regulatory piece, like in the case of the law or nuances or challenges that, that will not make sense for OpenAI won't dedicate a team of 300 people to the law, at least not immediately. Their organization is just not of that size. And DeepMind likely will not do that. Google, um, as large as it, will, as it is, will not do that. Um, so that creates a whole sort of category of companies that can specialize based on interactions in the reinforcement learning through premium feedback kind of style or for proprietary data that they can mine from you know various, uh, whether you think about it in terms of like case law or other forms of proprietary information that will give an edge that will satisfy and sort of fill the needs of customers in a way that the large language model providers will not. So that might be my current perspective and subject to change rapidly, I guess I would say. What do you reckon, Tom? Yeah, I think Aaron makes a great point on the kind of the niche potential for, for startups to be very, very focused, to be kind of like incredibly close to their customers, to be delivering a product which is like incredibly tailored to their specific pain points. Because I, I don't think even the biggest companies are going to be able to have that kind of focus. So I think within those verticals, which are maybe harder or even appear smaller at first. I, I personally quite like that as, as a way to think um, from a startup to try and compete with some of these people and these companies. But I think also talent is a really, really interesting vector to think about this through. Like the profile of people that hopefully startups are able to get are the more entrepreneurial people. I mean, Aaron, you know, obviously you were at DeepMind and then you moved away from DeepMind and you know, there's many, many examples of people at OpenAI and, you know, we've, we've backed companies which are ex-OpenAI engineers who are setting up their startups again. And it's like anything, right? It's like any companies get to that scale and the impact that you can have as an individual and as the most talented individuals potentially is reduced a bit. And so I think that gives startups an edge. I think it's like if they can focus on a niche and they can attract the talent, so from the founders to those early employees, then again, it links to the kind of product excellence they can build out. So I mean, look, we're biased. We're all like early stage investors. So we're always going to say this, but I think, um, yeah, that's where I come out of this. So I want to take a, 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 a tangent here, uh, moving away from investment temporarily before we come back to it and go into a topic that, I mean, this is the podcast on AI. If we didn't even talk about utopian versus dystopian, I don't know what kind of podcast it would be. So we have to talk about that. And in this idea of like the world that could go wrong or could go well, I want to get your thoughts, Aaron. So, you know, one of the things that um, we're always monitoring is the, how, you know, how tech is used, you know, whether you look at cybersecurity, you look at deep fakes. So, you know, we don't have to go too deep into that partially because I think everyone who's listening to this already is well aware of those risks. But I want to touch on some of the sort of more unexpected implications of some of this stuff. So the first one is the geopolitical slant of AI. And you know, you look at the world as it is today, you know, take something like Linux, open source, you can download it and then have distributions in different languages. And then each country might even have their own version of it. 
But then when you look at the, the cost to train an AI model, especially those that are controlled by you know, large countries, um, it doesn't distribute equally across the world. And I'm just getting a sense from you, what do you think the world's gonna look like in 10 years in light of where these models are coming from, where the bulk of the tools and technologies are coming from? How do we see ourselves expanding and yet at the same time dividing? I, maybe, I don't know, it's a big question, but Aaron, hey, this is what it's about. What a great question. Boy, I want to ponder that for a lot longer and would be keen to hear your own views because I'm sure you've asked that question many more times than I and have explored the responses. I, I mean, okay, first answer is I don't know. And I think if anyone claims to know that they're either from the future somehow or they are uh, overconfident. I, I guess in... 10 years is really hard for me to predict, not least because I think about the whole exponential nature of this and it feels like 10 years from now, okay, it's going to be like, we'll be in a wildly different species, but I'll give you yeah, we'll stop five years. Yeah, five, five years, 50% so if, if, I, if I cut that horizon to five years where I, where I could see us being is something that's not too dissimilar to the convergence we've had upon an oligopolistic, oligopolistic uh, cloud service provider market, where you end up with a handful of companies who offer these tools, regardless of modality, it could be language, it could be text-to-speech, it could be ASR, automated speech recognition, it could be um, video generation, and, and you know I'm sure that music generation, which is already uh, sort of occurring and, uh, and and anyway, you have a handful of these, each of which excels perhaps on one dimension or another, whether that's speed or quality by some metric, quality being actually an unhelpful underspecification. It, it, there, there are so many ways that a model can excel in terms of quality. It may be of really high quality for one particular context or use case, like the law, let's say, but uh, maybe not so much in uh, marketing copy contexts, or maybe not so much in medical contexts. And so you'll have, I, I could imagine there being these different providers that have specialties uh, that compete in a way that that is still economical for sort of the entire um, ecosystem. And, and that's what I mean when I say that it converges into this sort of oligopoly, because you do have the multiple sort of cloud providers who offer something that is not actually, like it, it's commodity to a level. And then you really want, if you're someone who cares so deeply about the bandwidth that you have for your particular use case, or, you know, in the model case, like the recall versus precision, you know, then it may matter that you go with Claude versus the latest in the GPT series, um, or like context window, right? It has been a big element of differentiation to this day, though advances are being made such that Claude is not the, the only one that now offers such long um, sort of histories. So I, I guess that's maybe how I see, and, and then, you know, how does that intersect with the geopolitical angle? I So many of these big players are North American. Um, you do and also have the rise of many Chinese uh, players that are, you know, every day now coming out with uh, new models that 
seem to rival the performance of those in the West. Um, so you might similarly have like, you know, the Baidus and others of the world who uh, provide offerings to that sort of hegemony. Um, and you could maybe have the likes of the Mistrals, uh, which are on the rise and, you know, th their differentiation being their open source more so than, you know, and I guess the Facebook meta with the, with Llama being of, of that kind too. So I could imagine there being a few of these, not 20, not 40, uh, probably closer to five to 10, um, that, that each have their own like subdivision, sub varieties, right? So it's not just like one model that they're putting out there, but you know, they have the different uh, sort of family of models maybe. I don't know. I I'm really curious to hear Tom and, and Carlos, your thoughts. What, what do you have to say? Tom, what do you reckon? I think, I think it's a really good way of, of thinking about it. I think that that it, definitely the five year, I could see that being a direction of travel. You know, what that kind of split looks like in terms of what each of these companies is doing. Um, exactly, it's hard to have confidence on at this moment, but definitely feel you could see that. And particularly like when you start to think of the geopolitical, there is a pretty big incentive for each of those kind of blocks to, to have their own version. So that probably increases the number, but whether that's unlikely to increase the competition, which could be a challenge because they're probably going to operate in kind of silos. And I suppose, you know, some of that is a little bit dependent on the hardware piece, which is obviously a, a pretty hot topic at the moment as well now in terms of getting access to that. But within five years, I feel like that that will be a solved problem. Um, so yeah, could definitely see that playing out. I think it's almost fun to kind of go for, if you start to go to the kind of five to 10 years and you start to use the, what the applications these models, what uh, you know the, the the applications which are going to be built on these models can do, that's where it starts to get very very interesting. I think in that kind of discussion that kind of bizarre Rishi Sunak Elon Musk conversation when Elon was saying that you know oh yeah all, all jobs are going to be automated like immediately that was like the <laughs> not immediately but like that was his the first answer to the question I think and everyone's like whoa that's that's interesting let's unpack that but. I, I mean, look, if you are, if you think a bit like Aaron, you were talking about the demos, which I thought was fascinating, by the way, the, the way he thinks almost as a, a human kind of like version of a, a machine learning model in, in a way to kind of like extrapolate and move forward and chess moves. It's kind of hard to not come out. It's some version of, <laughs> of that narrative. And I don't know whether it's 10 years, but it's, you know, it's, it's definitely, we're moving in that direction. I don't think humans are going to be you know, out of the picture. I, I believe that just the jobs that we do, humans do, will just change a lot. You know, I think that you could see a world where, you know, not to play with the legal one again, because it's come up quite a bit, but that, you know, lawyers set the guardrails and set up kind of the LLMs, which are then served to clients and clients do a lot of that work themselves, but there's still a need for it. But how many of those people are required versus the 2000 people who are in whatever the, the head office of a, a big law firm? I say that number's, probably less and it's a very different role so i think if you play with that i think there's inevitability i think aaron's right that we probably start to see a kind of oligo oligopolistic god that is a hard word isn't it um <laughs> number of big players who are running some of these these models and they're getting you know better and better around certain areas then the applications which are going to be built on top are going to be even better and the potential of those applications to do more of the work i think increases and so the role that we play and the role that society has in 
and kind of figuring out what it looks like in that world, I think is is really fascinating. But that's well, probably another two hour podcast. Card. No, I, I love I love the ten year prompt. I just I think the reason the, the the greatest cause of hesitation on my part on the ten year horizon is because today we're already seeing glimpses of what these agentic uh, tools can offer, and they generally disappoint, I will say. They seem incredible in certain demonstrations and then they fall flat on their faces in others. And yet that's just, if I go back, that's so much, that's what this field has been for as long as it's been around. It's, it has been the case that we've had demonstrations that have been incredibly impressive in one or two pockets using chests that we mentioned earlier, Deep Blue back in the, right, in the IBM, and then, and then it couldn't generalize. And then we had a big unforeseen advance occur. And then we had that again and again and again. And so I just, it's hard it, on the 10 year horizon. Yeah, like agents can't do much today, but in 10 years, I would have a hard time betting against agents being able to do so much of what we consider economically valuable activity of today. So anyway. Uh, what, what do you have to say, Carlos? What's your 10-year prognostication? Yeah, well, come on, Carlos. Yeah, no, I'm happy, happy, happy <laughs> to oblige you guys. No, actually, I was, you know, it's funny. I, I, I bought time to, to answer this question by you guys going first. Um, no, but I was thinking that maybe the way that this is going to play out, obviously, there's two parts to it, right? What it's going to look like, right? It's kind of like guessing what will airplanes look like 10 years from now. Um, but the more fundamental part of it is is less about guessing what they can do. Because I agree with Aaron, you know, this is like Rosenberg's law is that you never know exactly what's going to happen, you know, on an exponential basis. Um, but I think the way that this is going to look is probably going to be the sort of merger of what weapon systems being sold looks like and what data information rights per jurisdiction looks like. So if you look at the countries that buy weapons, um, they buy weapons from people that they're allies with, right? And so you'll see like what airplanes the U.S. sells F-35s or F-22s to, and they fit into the NATO profile. So that's an alliance of sorts. So I suspect that a lot of the technologies that are AI-driven, especially, I mean, they're not necessarily weapons, but there's such a high national security risk that I foresee that whatever's built will only be shared with the alliances in the similar structure, and that means also, you know, whatever's built in China will be dis disseminated that way. And then what you'll have is nations like in, in Africa or Latin America who will eventually have to kind of pick sides or alternatively will be using some sort of pre-compiled open source versions that are good enough for, for their purposes. So that's one half of the equation. Then the other half of the equation is there's probably going to be a bunch of regulation, which we're going to get into in a second with Tom, that will force them to have uh, the data associated with this stuff in localized areas like shards. So you might have like the F-22 licensing from the U.S., so to speak, metaphorically, but you'll have the actual construction of it and the storage and the fueling of it in the home country. So that way you're never entirely reliant on that. And then, of course, these companies will end up having to come up with pre-compiled or somewhat shielded versions to be able to provide that service to allies. So that's kind of how I expect it to play out. But I guess it's as good as yours, guys. So regulation. Tom, tell us, where are we on responsible AI and regulation? Yeah, changing tax a little bit. How are we going to stop the kind of, you know, the, the dystopian future from happening, right? Um, look, I mean, I don't know Aaron and the work that he's been doing with Radical and, and you know, alongside many of our friends um, around responsible AI, his, we'll, we'll, we'll come on to in a moment, but I, I almost see it as like a bit of a spectrum we have at the moment. We have, you know, people who are 
I'm very keen to keep everything incredibly open and like, you know, pushing that narrative and seeing that, I guess, the potential upside, which I think, you know, we all agree with in terms of what is possible with AI and the huge amounts of like value creation, the problems it can solve. And then we have, you know, people on the other end of that spectrum who are almost very worried about the direction of travel and maybe think that 10 year horizon is like, is a lot less or the potential negative directions that it can go in are inevitable and it's worrying. So I think we have these kind of two spectrums. I think if you go on X at any point, you can see some pretty interesting discussions happening from each side of those and world leading experts on both. So I think that anyone who is supposed to dive into that, I think that's a great way to check it out. But I feel like regulation is trying to kind of come to a happy place in between these two opposing thoughts. And I think that ultimately you know where we are obviously with the uk um with the eu ai act and i guess something which could follow from the uk and you know the initiatives at the safety summit a, a couple of weeks ago is that i think there feels like from a lot of parties and particularly on the large tech side there's a desire to have you know more like anything with law i think just more clarity around the framework and an understanding that there needs to be something to be put in place and and i think that that will end up, and it kind of is with the um, UK EU Act, and um, when that kind of kicks in, in in more earnest, that you have more of a, like many things, kind of a risk-based approach, right? You know, I think you're going to end up with something that where the companies which are operating in those industries, which have potential for most harm or most risk, then they are going to have slightly higher like um, requirements on them and a higher standard than some of the companies which are at a different level. And I think also that can apply to even the size of the company and the scale of the company and the potential impact it can have. And so I think that we'll get there. I think the challenge with any regulation across any space, and I think Aaron's touched upon this with, with ML a few times in some of his comments, is that space is moving, or this space is moving so, so, so fast that I worry, well, not I don't, maybe worry is too strong, but I think that any regulation with the time it takes to come out is probably always going to feel like it's a little bit behind the latest in terms of like where we are with the frontier technology. So that's why I thought the, the UK's um, safety summit focusing on frontier technology was a really good angle to go down. Because if you can get a little bit ahead of that, you know, to where the puck's going, again, to steal your phrase, Aaron, like, I think that's where it's interesting to have these conversations. And that's where I think, and I don't want to steal the responsible AI funder, because I think you, you can explain it better than, than me, Aaron. But that's where I think that's a really interesting initiative, because if you can go to the source of where the capital is coming from. So so us as venture capital investors and just have kind of conversations like we're having now as part of an investment decision. And I think that's the gist of what the Responsible AI Labs and some of the other initiatives which are coming out and the protocol that they're um, launching. I think that's a really interesting way of, of getting to kind of where the puck's going and rather than being fully reliant on regulation because ultimately I feel like, and we've seen this across many sectors and many different industries that Regulation is an incredibly important part in any sector. And, you know, I think I I, I, I do believe we, we need it to a certain extent, even in AI. And I don't think it will necessarily hold back innovation hugely, and it shouldn't. Um, but it's hard for that to always be up to date because this space is moving so, 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 so quickly. So I know, Tom, that you and Aaron were recently at an event together uh, on this very subject. And, and I know, that Aaron, you led a session, but maybe you can walk us through what kind of conversations were playing out and what are the issues that I think a lot of our industry peers are worried about in how to communicate to their portfolio? Sure. Yes. 
there's there's so much here and again so much tom that you've just mentioned to which i want to respond i i think some of the interesting complexities here included hooting that a former colleague of mine at DeepMind um noted to my somewhat surprise actually because i hadn't thought about it previously but this is one of the few instances not only but few where such great innovation has occurred technologically outside of the public sector, that the government has generally had limited role in the innovation per se, unlike, let's say, in the case of nuclear technologies or space faring technologies or telecommunications technologies, even uh, the internet and so on. So um, that creates a whole host of new challenges because indeed we are left to some degree to private corporations and entities to, to guide this technology and its development and deployment more so than in the past. Um, and I think that, as you note, Tom, we in the venture community have a real significant role to play. We have the power to fund these companies that are undertaking such innovation, that are leading, that are at the vanguard, perhaps, as Demis used to say. Uh, and therefore, we should take that with great responsibility, is, is my view, personally. Uh, all the leaders of today, the, the DeepMind, the OpenAIs, even the Alphabets, Microsofts, were once venture-backed companies. And and many of the players that are important today, like the Anthropics and Coheres and so on, are today still primarily venture-backed companies. So, you know, are, we have the, the power to decide to some degree who will be the next generation of these companies. And uh, and so for us at Radical, so a few notes about the firm for those who are less familiar. We have been dedicated exclusively to backing machine learning companies and founders since our inception. And since our inception, we're founded by machine learning founders themselves who had created the firm as the one that they wished that had existed when they were going through their entrepreneurial journeys. One that could support them in ways that were distinctive to machine learning companies, could understand the challenges of machine learning companies and, and help them. Uh, in, in nuanced and, and distinctive ways. Uh, because of, of that history, since our inception, we have required in all of our term sheets the clause around responsibility, which at the outset was thought extraordinary. And indeed, lawyers would look at the term sheets and often try to scratch out that line because they would say, this is not something that is usually here. You should not have this here, not standard lane. And we say, no, this is necessary. We're going to keep this here. Uh, and since then, we have just been continually considering how we could strengthen our commitment to responsibility. And the latest instantiation of this uh, is, a, is a framework that we put out to the broader community for everyone's benefit, because we recognize that we've been investing in this area for a while and have learned a lot of valuable lessons. And we want to share those for others to be able to use as they come into this maybe with less uh, experience. So that they can grapple with some of these really difficult questions that would, I think, cause consternation for so many people very reasonably in the sense that you could have a company like one of these uh, large language model providers and that at its core can do so much good and can also have such risk. And so how to think about all the ways in which that could play out and, and then uh, sort of mitigate the downside while promoting upside is not an easy consideration yet is one that I think is very necessary for all of us as investors to have in the course of meeting these companies and then certainly in investment committee decision making um, processes. Uh, and so 
Yeah, we try our best to engage with founders early on this topic, which itself is often very revealing because there are some founders who relish the opportunity to share generously the degree of depth uh, of thought that they put into this, whatever their company may be, whether it's an application layer company or a model provider. And there are others who think of this as more of a distraction or think of it as mutually exclusive with innovation and progress, as we see from many vocal voices in the community, including those who really espouse uh, techno-optimism to the end. And so I think that for us is very revealing because it just suggests to what degree are we aligned in our sort of philosophical approach to cultivating this community. Um, and then, yeah, when it pertains to actual investment committee deliberations, we have a, a way of sort of just asking ourselves, what are all the ways in which this could go well? And, you know, oftentimes we are asking ourselves that as investors because you're trying to imagine a future that doesn't exist today. And what are all the ways in which this could go poorly? And to what extent can we put in place measures that will reduce the likelihood and the severity of the outcomes if they do occur? And given those, what residual risk remains and how comfortable are we with that being outweighed significantly by the benefits that this could bring to humanity. And so those that's like a, a broadly how we try to think about this topic. And there's much more material I can share with anyone who is interested. So uh, yeah, working with a lot, I should also say this is not like a sole effort. We're working in collaboration with so many others from whom we've learned a lot and, and who are great partners in, in trying to push this in the absence or maybe in the interim as we await regulation and other clarity around what the future will look like in the development and deployment of this. Yeah. So for, for those that are listening, we're going to have in the show notes, some of those resources, Tom, you mentioned a few, Aaron, as well. So Aaron, send it to us after this, and then we'll include them. But to conclude, Aaron, I wanted to go through five fast fire questions. They're not easy. Oh boy. I don't make any promises <laughs> on these, go. but they're fun. This Let's is start. very nerve wracking. Let's start off with an easy one. Yankees or Red Sox in 2024? Uh, Yankees, obviously. Uh, big Yankee jersey <laughs> behind me for those who are unaware. If you ever meet me um, in, in person, you'll know pretty immediately. And I'm a diehard Yankees fan having grown up in New York City. So that's a stupid question. Come on. All right. Fine. <laughs> easy, one, one. easy one to warm me up. All right. The next one. The AI pin from Humane. Humane, yeah. It's radicalizing this idea of a different user interface for AI. Yeah. Yay or nay? Are we going to be using that kind of interface five years from now or not? Definitely yay on a different interface. Uh, I, I, I think that's a very plausible one. I, I think I mean, it, it fits with a lot of science fiction, you know, her style instantiations of, of what this could look like. In the absence of, of other alternatives and having not thought deeply about this myself and not being a particularly product design oriented person, I I think that it has a lot of qualities that I think I really admire. Yeah. I think that is a nay, but a nice maybe on the end of it. <laughs> I would say more yay than a nay. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. 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 All right. Fair enough. All right, the next one is, what are the titles of three blog posts that you might write for Radical VC in 2024? The title of three blog posts, okay. Uh, whew, okay. Why I love the AI pin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, 
or yeah, um, how I came to love the bomb, right? Um, uh, no, I, I, um, I guess one would be, it has to be in the vein of, of responsibility. I, 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 I guess maybe a, how to, maybe the first one would be how I think about investing responsibly in artificial intelligence, something like that. Uh, I just think that's going to be a perennially important topic. I guess a second might re relate to an area of interest, which would probably be something in the sciences. So maybe around how how artificial intelligence will uh, unlock whole new fields of scientific discovery. Sure, let's say that is number two. And then number three, oh, okay, I'm inclined to, towards something that's, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, former colleagues, I should say, who's uh, actually now in the White House, um, an amazing uh, polymath. Um, and I had this ambition of, of writing so much more about our thoughts on where the field would go, and we haven't had nearly enough time. Uh, but I, I, there's a piece that maybe relates to your question about humane. I, I just, I think the interface that we will have with computing is going to be wildly different. And one Turner phrase that he coined, so I cannot take credit, was that of a buttonless future. That is to say, we use these uh, buttons in so much of what we do on computers as sort of uh, distillations of actions into a single approximation of what we want to do. And rarely is that actually what we want to do. And instead, there is so much greater uh, depth to, to what we can do now in our communication with computers through language. Um, and so I just think that in the future, there will, we won't interact with buttons as sort of uh, steps. So what a buttonless uh, you know, future looks like, maybe that's number three. Uh, I have to think a lot more about four and five. So that's I'll a good there. one. That's a good one. I actually, uh, let's co-write that one. Let's do Great. that. Oh, I would love that. Yeah, I would love to hear, hear your thoughts on this too. That yeah. sounds good. Well, I, I do actually have quite a bit of an opinions on this one, but but this is these are the fast fire questions for you. All right, the next one one job that you think will likely be at risk next year because of ai next year yeah next year like that at next year like this year there was a lot of you know uh tension around creative arts uh, yeah copywriting and all that yeah all right next year I do, I think, yeah i so i i i've been extremely impressed with uh video music and, and audio generation capabilities that are occurring already mm -hmm. i guess next year those related jobs probably won't be risk because there's the whole duration of adoption that's required. like it, it's not like you have this technology and then overnight it's pervasive and renders obsolete so many different jobs um so it, it's going to take many i mean even if you think about like the creative industry like copywriters right like just because jasper exists and you know the various others of that kind um, doesn't mean that, or you know, ChatGPT and, and so on doesn't mean that those are jobs are are gone, nor like they just changed in some way. And and even if they were to go away, and they're 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 like maybe they're at their peak or something, and they're plateauing, and maybe they don't continue to grow as rapidly, or they slightly descend. It's not like they're totally gone. Um, so it's hard to say. I mean, what would be at risk next year is something that would have to have already been sort of uh, at risk for many years now. And I guess I have a harder, I mean, well, people talk about like software engineering as one way in which you have a lot of these coding co-pilots, super impressive. 
at some point, I think it begins to be a challenge because right now it still remains the case that we have so much demand for software that if you just made every engineer in the world 10x more productive, that would be great. And there would still be more work to be done. So it's not like those jobs are at risk now, but if they get to be a hundred X and if you get to have these agentic systems that can create whole websites and create whole apps and do all of these things really well, then maybe you actually do need, like just as we were talking about in the law, maybe you need one partner and one senior associate and not an army of first and second year associates. Maybe similarly, that's the case in coding. I've just begun to ramble. This is not a helpful response, nor a quick fire. I'm sorry. I'll stop there. No, I mean, these are all good points. You know, I think they're all good points. Um, and then the last one is, what do you think will happen first? Humanoid robots doing general jobs in society or a person in Mars? Oh, it's so funny that you say that because I have long wished to go to Mars. And you can ask my wife. I have a lifetime sort of, uh, what's the right word? Assertion or, I mean, it's definitely a dream that I will go to Mars. So desperately, I hope that we get a human to Mars because that would be amazing. Not, not that I think that I deserve to be the first, nor even among like any initial cohort. I have no skills that would be valuable for such an expedition. Yet, uh, it would be pretty awesome, I think, both to get that perspective on the universe and on Earth and our species, and also just to be truly an explorer in a way that we have not really had as a species in a long time. I and mean, people talk about the depth of the seas also providing that. Anyway, uh, so I guess that's my, that's my hope. Um, I think given timelines associated with space travel, that would be, you know, at least on the order of like five years away, I think, just even if you think about the alignment of Earth and the times at which we can send such a vessel into orbit, and we haven't yet even demonstrated SpaceX's vehicle for getting to Mars at sufficient. Um, so I think that's probably on the order of five plus years, maybe 10 years before we have occur. And it probably won't be a human, it'll probably be a robot when we do get the first entity, like a sort of uh, being uh, to, to Mars on behalf of humanity. So if that's how long that one takes, then I think humanoid robot doing something useful is definitely more likely to occur on a shorter time frame. Yeah, no, I would say that that's a very good deductive uh, assumption. I think the thing for me is whether or not society accepts it. That's a separate question, but you know that'll be an interesting one that will be in our lifetimes. I think both will be in our lifetimes. So this will be one of those- That's so crazy, isn't it? Isn't that crazy? Every so often I come back to that realization that we are just so fortunate like this is all happening in our life. Like, what? That's crazy. It just, this is like it, the, I don't know. And I'm sure everyone feels this way about their generation. Maybe, I hope so. I, I certainly feel that way. Yeah, it's a definitely a, a, a fun science fiction generation that we're living in. Well, uh, we've gone way over time, but it's been an absolute blast to chat with both of you. It's such a, such a complicated question. I'm sure we could do this every year and it would be entirely different every time. With that, I just want to thank you both and until next time, everyone.